to our podcast with super fans Rose and Sam and Malika too. She's undecided if she even likes it. But we watched our game and talk about it because it's fun. We probe the wormholes, yes we do, cause we have nothing. Better to do so. Listen, here's our show. Hi, welcome to Probing the Wormhole, a Stargate discussion podcast. I'm Sam and I'm here with Rose, super fan of Stargate. Malika, becoming a super fan, but still on the fence. Oh, okay. And I am also a super fan as well. Uh, So we have a disclaimer for you. There is some mention of domestic violence in this episode, so please use your discretion. Today we'll be discussing The First Commandment, episode five of season one. So I am just going to start off the discussion with a question. Is this episode a comment on religious fanaticism, or is it more a critique of how we treat our soldiers, especially soldiers who have been through the ship, like black ops missions, or is it just sun sickness? What do you think? Or is it a commentary on domestic violence and controlling relationships or all of the above? <laughs> maybe all of the above. Or maybe none of the above. And it's just like a mini character study of a man who's gone off the deep end. Okay, well, is it, so is Hansen crazy? because he's a religious fanatic or is he crazy because he's been through a lot of shit with the military and he hasn't, he hasn't been uh, connected with services yet. (laughs) So I think that's excellent. Those are excellent questions. I think I'm starting with Hanson's obviously a narcissist, right? That's his baseline personality. And it seems that the person in the show who knew him before this, Sam, was not surprised that he took this route. So let's start with that. However, I don't think it's so much religious fanaticism because most religious fanatics don't think they are in fact God. Most of the ones I've met, they believe strongly in God, but they don't think they are God. And so I think this is a level of mental illness that maybe you start with like a narcissist and then mix up a whole bunch of severe trauma, untreated, and then this is what you get. I would agree with that. I also think that because... Carter alluded to them having problems anyway, and she said that her type, I can't remember exactly what she said, but her type was lunatic fringe. lunatic fringe. So we knew that he already had mental health issues. And there's also a part where they're discussing while he's looking through the Bible and he says, I've looked for God my whole life. Um, and then I realized I am God, right? So I think there was probably even before going to the military, there was a narcissistic personality disorder. Then he goes into the military, has a lot of trauma, doesn't get the treatment that he needs, then goes to this planet that kind of fries his, cooks his brain from the UV light and makes him crazy. So it is all above for you, Malika. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like we should point out that we all work in criminal justice. And so we do encounter lots of people with narcissistic personality disorder and various mental health issues with varying levels of access to services. (laughs) Color our interpretation of this episode. And for that, we apologize. (laughs) Well, so I 
thought that uh, the military gives its soldiers a Bible. Maybe this is his own Bible. Is is that what we're meant to, to think? Does the military give people Bibles? That seems like a big First Amendment violation. I think you can get a Bible or a Torah or a Quran from your military reverend preacher, you know, because they have they have religious leaders in the military. They don't impose it on you. They don't like, here's your boots and your Bible. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so I think it was his own Bible. Okay. And plus, why would you want, I mean, I understand if you're religious and you, and you find comfort in God and the Bible that you're going to bring that with you on trips, but he literally has it in his, you know, going to the Stargate. It seems like unnecessary, an unnecessary added load to your pack. So he's clearly struggling with faith and meaning and all that and, and finds it on this planet where he turns out that he is God and has a whole civilization of people willing to feed that delusion. So yeah, maybe it is that perfect storm of mental illness and power and stuff like that. And maybe Carter is the one who put him into this religious <laughs> zealotry. The fact that she gave back the ring and was like, uh-uh, you're too crazy even for me. And so he just, it was like a nose, a nose dive. I like this episode for the way that it sort of illuminates Carter and makes her a little bit more of a full character because she is this like really kick-ass person. She's like obviously a very skilled soldier and fighter and really, really brilliant scientist. And this episode, I think, really puts her as a vulnerable person in a way that we haven't seen before. And we just generally don't see very much in the course of the show. The idea that somebody who, who we think of as like so confident and so good at what she does could be could be in an abusive relationship, which I think, I think the, the implication is this was abusive, that he was either physically abusive or at the very least very controlling. And why would she be with somebody like that to the point where they got engaged? Yeah, I, I agree. He shows all the signs of being a manipulative abuser. He control. He wants to control her. He blames Carter for their breakup. He said uh, she didn't fix him or she didn't try hard enough to fix him. And then he tries to butter her up by calling her goddess because he wants her to fix that device. And when she refuses to fix it, he then threatens to kill them all. And then he threatens to kill O'Neill. I mean, the only thing missing from this was his jealousy. About O'Neill? Yeah. Yeah. And I think on top of that, I think that her relationship with him has so damaged her ability to, to think clearly around him that he was able to take the gun away. You know, she could have ended the entire thing and just shot him and saved all those people. I mean, obviously that happens at the end anyway, but she could have taken care of that. And instead, a soldier took away her gun. Isn't that one of like the cardinal sins of being in the military or a police officer is to have your weapon taken away from you? So whatever he did to her really impacted her psychologically, that all of her training and all of the procedures that she knows about weapon safety go out the window when he just chit chats with her. But is it that she couldn't kill him or she just couldn't kill in that situation? I mean, I have my, like, let's say she had killed him or shot him. She clearly would have been attacked or subdued or killed herself by his people, which may have been worth it, you know, which, which she may have decided in another circumstance to do and sacrifice herself to get rid of him. But he, he didn't seem rattled by her pointing the gun at him. Like he knew she wasn't going to shoot him. 
And so that to me indicated a very long history of control between the two of them. I agree. It was more than just that moment. It was like, you're not going to do this. And I know you're not going to do this. And so to me, this episode puts Sam Carter as like a domestic violence survivor. Like that, that's the impression I get from this episode. And and there are a lot of stuff, there's a lot of psychological baggage that happens from that, that I don't think you just shake off very easily. I'm not surprised that this happened so early on. It seems like every time they go through the Stargate, there is always a group of people who think that they're initially gods. I would think it would be very attractive to pretend to be God for a day or two. It seems like Hammond and SGC should probably implement some kind of training program. Yeah, and they do mention, I mean, to go back to the like, you know, how does the military handle soldiers that they traumatize? And they say like, well, SGC personnel are like highly trained and go through rigorous like evaluations to avoid this. But, you know, so this was SG9 that was on this planet. Two of the members of SG9, Connor and Frakes, say this is messed up. We're not going to be a part of this. They tried to get to the Stargate. But two of them don't. Like, it's not just Hanson. There is that other guy who was totally willing to go along with his plan for the most part. I think he puts up one argument of like, oh, but you're going to kill them if you make them work during the day, but otherwise it's just fine with doing this. So it's it's more than just one guy. It's, it seems like more of a systemic issue. And so what is, you know, like, yeah, so what is the SGC and the military doing to make sure that the people they're putting out into the universe are psychologically sound enough to not fall into this power trap? It doesn't sound like much because Carter makes that observation as well when, when she's talking to Daniel, that a lot of these, these guys have been through quite a lot and they're asked to do, to lead these, these missions off world. And a lot of them don't have uh, stable mental health that they should. Yeah. And I think Daniel says that the, the military actually likes them the crazier, the better, because then they'll do crazy things. And then of course, during that conversation, the camera pans towards O'Neill. Mm-hmm. So I would think this is a bit of a shipper's corner because <laughs> we, we, we have Carter and Daniel talking about how Carter really appreciates, has a soft spot for the lunatic fringe. And then suddenly the camera pans towards O'Neill and we don't give, we don't get much of a reaction from O'Neill, but we get something. It's almost like the show is telling us, Hey, maybe Carter is going to have a soft spot for O'Neill. I love the shipper, like the little shipper moments in here. And as a shipper, I'm always inclined to like read shippiness into everything. (laughs) But I do, the one part of this episode I love is that conversation between Carter and O'Neill at the end. And I actually, to me, that isn't a shipper moment. It's like a really like a commanding officer being a good commanding officer. And by telling her, don't feel ever feel bad about not killing somebody. And I think that's exactly the right thing to say. And it signals to me that he's seeing her as a fellow soldier and he knows the shit that you go through. And that sometimes you second guess yourself in trying to manage that. So that was, that's one of my favorite moments of this. I agree. I don't read Chipper in in that last moment. I read, this is her commanding officer, uh, giving her some sound advice. And I think this is when Carter really starts to uh, respect him as her commanding officer. I love the little like bits of insubordination that are thrown out here. Like the whole, like, you know, Carter, you go back. And she's like, no, sir. And Connor, you go back. And he's like, no, sir. And he's like, does it say Colonel anywhere on my uniform? Which it does not, right? At least not on that uniform. And I like that he's the kind of leader that could 
like listen to that reasoning and say why this is why I'm not doing what you're telling me to do and sort of move on and not be all on a power trip. And that was kind of fun. And there that continues through like there are all these little bits of of O'Neill realizing he's not actually in a, as much control as he thinks he is. But he he seems to be mostly okay with that. He's not like Hanson where he has to be in control of every little situation. Right. Like when he also tells Carter to wait and she goes and like gets herself captured and he's like, "All oh, right, that's probably actually the best way to go anyway." Well, do you think he actually was trying to tell her that she needed to find some way of inserting herself into the situation down there? I don't, I mean, I think the implication is you should always keep your eyes open for good ideas and like ways to get in there. But I think he was not expecting her to do that or asking her to do that. So what about Connors? Because Connors actually admitted that he went along with the whole God complex at first. Later on, he changed his mind and he tried to warn SGC, but he was sort of complicit in Hanson's pretending to be God. Well, do you think that that might be a rank issue? Like when they got there and Hanson decided that he was going to rule these people, the rest of them kind of followed orders for a certain period of time. And then they tried to escape. Didn't they say that they were there for about, I think Hansen said that they were there, what, six weeks, six or nine weeks, I believe. One of those two. I'm pretty sure that everybody was following orders, uh, Hansen's orders for at least five and a half weeks. That's a long time to be, to be pretending to be God. I agree. And yet Connor walked off with them at the end into the Stargate, almost as if he was not going to face a court martial. Yeah, I mean, I would chalk it up to following orders probably. Like, it, I mean, his explanation was like, okay, this seemed like a reasonable way to go about at the beginning, but then it seemed to get bad. And, you know, like, I don't, I've never been in that situation where you're like legally obligated to follow someone's directive. But I imagine that's really hard to decide that a commanding officer is like no longer giving lawful orders. I think that's got to be really tough to make that evaluation, especially when you don't have any kind of support network, like you're on this planet by yourself and you really have to make that that call by yourself. Well, especially because Connor said that the anthropologist who they had on the team said, this is the best way to learn from this group of people. Let's go ahead and let Hanson do it. So it was signed off. It It was just following orders. Well, when Connor said that once they put the non-believers out on stakes in the sun and they either died or they went blind, I think that was the turning point for Connor and the the guy who died at the beginning. So what if Daniel had been the anthropologist on SG9? Do you think he would have had the same the same reaction? I do. I mean, I, I don't know. It, like, had this been SG1, obviously O'Neill wouldn't have taken this route. But yeah, let's say he was the, the anthropologist with Hansen. I think he, you know, he's made some weird, questionable decisions in his capacity as an anthropologist on previous episodes, like in Emancipation. Like when they were on Broca Divide, when the, the people started bowing down to them and O'Neill's like, get up, don't do that. And he's like, no, no, this is this is what, what we should expect. So I think he might have made that same call. I think he made a, may have realized it was a mistake sooner. I don't see Daniel uh, murdering a fellow team member. Yeah, I don't think Daniel would kill an indigenous group of people. He's more of a lover rather than a fighter. I think in this episode, we get a little bit more of everyone's personality than we have up until this point. Like Teal finally gets to say some stuff. Still not a whole, still not, I wouldn't say a Teal episode, but he at least gets to be like the guy that knows how to work the devices and explain them. When he does that whole thing, where, that smile thing, like where he's like, look friendly. 
he smiles. Yeah, that was pretty funny. Like comedic moments or like the good drawing part, which I also think is pretty funny. That was great. I love that. Yeah. So yeah, so I'm like, I feel like he gets to show off his like comedic timing a little bit in this episode. Well, it, it took Carter, what, a good half an hour to get her device to work and Daniel and Teal just poked at theirs and it, it, it worked. He knew what it was already. Right. So he That's had true. But there's also that, that scene where Carter and Daniel are talking about Hanson being lunatic fringe in her history. And Tilk stops them because he was on like reconnaissance. He was working. He was making sure that they wouldn't get shot or discovered. And the look on his face is just kind of like this tiny bit of you gossiping little ninnies. We are on a mission. <laughs> and the look on his face, and it was literally like a millisecond. I, I had to rewind it. It was hilarious. I thought it was so funny, but it did. It's like, this is our first venture into his personality. And it seems pretty fun. He seems pretty funny and sarcastic. They probably should have not been talking because they don't want people to overhear them. So I, I could definitely understand where Tilk is coming from. <laughs> I like that a, lo a lot. I was like, wait, what? Because <laughs> I thought they were just like, you know, it was like a casual stroll through the desert. And no. Like up on somebody. <laughs> exactly. There was somebody in their group that was actually working and protecting them from certain death. So going back to the scenes, they come upon that giant scene where everyone's working. And I, I actually was pretty impressed with this, this scene. It, it didn't seem like a, uh, a matte backdrop, like real people were actually um, wandering about using axes and actually working. I was, it was impressive. You know, CGI was really in its infancy in the late 90s. So I wonder how much of it was... CGI and how much of it was like set up. I, I just don't remember the 90s having a whole lot of really awesome CGI. Yeah, I don't think there was, this was CGI. I think there's just a bunch of extras. But I think the temple wasn't real. I think that was a paint. If it wasn't CGI, and I agree, you're right. Uh, now that I think about it, it wasn't CGI. It looked like it was like a backdrop, a painted backdrop. Okay, so so the temple could have been a map backdrop. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Oh, another little tidbit. So when at the end, when he, when O'Neill's flipping through the Bible, clearly not a Bible reading guy. And then he's like, you know, when I was thinking about the first commandment and then Carter like recites it. So my impression is that she grew up in a religious household. I think Catholic. I think she mentions at some point that she was Catholic and was able to like rattle off that first commandment. So you get a little bit more of her personality as well and her upbringing, which kind of explains some things about her, I think. It does. And I've obviously seen more of her family. So I, I know... <laughs> I know a little bit more about her than, than maybe Malika. <laughs> Wait, what? Well, you know, the whole show and you have not seen. So she may or may not have some family members that eventually become characters in the show. And there is a, a fair amount of guilt that goes around in that family uh, about something. So I didn't pick up on that, that, that she was probably well-versed in the Bible, but it does make sense knowing what I know about her. And you will find out, Malika, don't worry. So what did you guys think about Jamala? So he's the the guy that went to go take a drink of water by the stream. Yeah, I think he serves his purpose. I don't think we really get to know him very well. Well, at the end of the show, they leave everyone there and it the camera stays on Jamala almost as if he's going to be like the new leader of the cave dwellers. Yeah, that makes sense. I guess it does. I still wonder do they have any other kind of leadership? Is this just a small community of cave dwellers? I mean, how big is this planet? 
Well, so this is, you know, my general issue with like the Stargates. It's like they, they always seem to be like one community that's right near the Stargate or within, you know, a day's walk of the Stargate. And then what's the, on the rest of the damn planet? Like planets are very, very large, right? Our planet holds 9 billion people or something like that. And if their gravity is the same such that they're walking in the same manner they would be on Earth, the planet has to be roughly the same size. So what is on the rest of these planets and why does nobody seem curious about it? That's one issue that will persist. And also they make the sky orange and, and it's not the whole sky. It's just like a protective shield around some area. And when the guy's like, we get to see what's outside the caves and Daniel's like, the world is very, very big. I'm like, that shield didn't look like it covered too much of an area. Like you see it, it looked like it covered maybe like, I don't know, three city blocks. So it's not that big of an area that you get to be in. And those devices don't look very portable. I mean, they could probably pick up those devices and take them to another part of the planet, but they, they didn't look like they could just, you know, put them over their shoulder and then carry them away. Well, and the other thing is at the end when they're like, maybe we should check up on these guys. And Sam's like, I think we've done enough, which fair point. And I think her point was more to like, we fuck, we, you know, we, the U.S. military have really fucked these people. I think they, we probably, our best move is to step back. But like, what happens when those, if those devices break? I do think they have some responsibility to make sure that the harm they caused is mitigated and that the people are safe in some way. Well, they they decide not to bury the Stargate. So they could potentially go back and, and and I think that was contemplated at the end, wasn't it? That they would go back and mitigate any harm that they did. Well, then she says, well, I think we've done enough. And to me, that brings up the interesting point of like, I actually do think this is exactly how the U.S. military would venture into space by like going, sending people who are poorly trained, poorly evaluated into these situations and just letting them do what they're going to do. And sometimes it works out well. And a lot of times it completely, completely fucks people over. That part feels pretty accurate to me, which is in some ways why I like Stargate as opposed to Star Trek. You know, it's supposed to be set in the future and you have the prime directive and you have a lot more protocols around how you're supposed to carry yourself when it comes to dealing with foreign cultures. And here they don't. It's kind of like, let's just see what happens. Let's just do our thing and see what happens. Yeah, this this series stands for the exact opposite of the prime directive. Mm-hmm. What is the prime directive? The directive of non-interference. So if you come upon a alien world that has not had first contact with other cultures, you can't like go in and do stuff. But they only invented the, or they only imposed the prime directive sometime between the original series and the next generation. So there were plenty of like decades where they did do that. And I think that's why they developed the prime directive. So back to this planet, this planet was called Avenil. I guess we are, again, supposed to assume that these are alien trees because trees would not be able to grow in an area where there's a high, high uh, UV light. Yeah. And so I, I guess the planet just naturally has a very high UV like level, which and Sam mentioned like no birds. So I guess that means it's really limited amount of animal life, but I guess the plant life may have adapted. It might look like regular trees, but they've adapted to like survive with this particular level of UV light. But it seems like a poor choice of a place to locate it or to put a human settlement. Well, there were probably animals in the past because there is a skull in the the cave behind Hansen when he's doing his God, I am God talk. There's a bunch of skulls and some really big. Well, it, it makes me question why they would add the whole thing about the UV light to this to this world. I mean, maybe they just wanted it to look more alien or be more be more unearth like. But it almost seemed to me like they wanted to give some kind of excuse for Hansen's degradation. 
other than just religious fanaticism and that he has been to too many black ops missions. Yeah. I was going to say it, it also, that UV, the UV issue also brings up the urgency of protecting these people who are dying from building the temple and being put out on the stakes and stuff like that. So their purpose in saving those people even more persistent. But the UV light doesn't make you crazy. I mean, not on earth. It just gives you, I guess, skin cancer. They intimated that it actually made Hansen crazy. Yeah, I don't, yeah, I don't buy that. So I think he was already crazy. I think he was crazy and then found a, like people that were willing to feed his control and power fantasies. Yeah, I'm wondering if the people who wrote this show added that bit in because maybe the Air Force consultant said, no, you can't, we can't have crazy Air Force people. There needs to be some external reason for them to be crazy. Actually, you know, I don't really know the relationship that Stargate had with the Air Force in terms of like control over, I don't think they had any like official control over content, but they did have like consultants. And I know the Air Force like loves the show because it essentially paints them in a really positive light and it made people want to join the Air Force and all that. But there, you know, I think if you look closely at the show, there is a lot more critique of the military than comes across at first glance. And I think this episode is a good example of that. I do know that Richard Dean Anderson respected the Air Force and the military in general, and he was at some point producer. He did have some influence. And I think some of the the storylines that they wanted to do weren't executed because it didn't paint the Air Force in a very good light. Yeah. I mean, I think maybe because of that, maybe because there was like a hesitation to have like episodes that were overtly like critical of the military, they did it in much more subtle ways. And like in this case, yeah, you you could say that this guy just went nuts and, and read it as sort of an individual story of a man going nuts, or you can read it in the context of a soldier going nuts because in part because of him being a soldier and why, you know, why wasn't his being nuts caught before he was given the tremendous amount of importance leading this mission and why wasn't it treated if you know like if you're doing black ops you should assume same thing like with police officers you should assume that your entire force is traumatized because you're putting them in situations where they're going to be traumatized so what are you doing to mitigate the harm from that and and there was like a little bit of commentary on that but not that much And I wanted to point out that both Hanson and Carter were the same rank, and yet Carter does not get her own team. (laughs) I mean, yes, she's on SG-1. They're the, the main Stargate team, but still, isn't it a soldier's dream to be command of some kind of unit? Yeah. Carter's continual, like, underappreciation is a sore spot throughout the series. Okay, so the important question... How many chevrons would you give this episode? Rose, what do you think? I'd give this a four chevrons. Not one of my favorites, but I do think it, it, I like the way it sheds light on Sam's character. For that alone, I give it four chevrons. And I think it raises some interesting questions. I would give it four chevrons as well. Uh, It's inoffensive. I don't really have a burning desire to watch it when I do rewatch. What about you, Malika? Um, I feel immense peer pressure right now, but I'm going to stick with my original two chevrons. There's no history to delve into. Feels like almost like a filler episode. I'm glad that we got some backstory on Carter and we got some personality from Tilk, but that's, that's two. So two chevrons. I didn't see how this contributes to this season. We should also ask, uh, how would this episode be made today or what would be different? 
and I'm going to go first, if you don't mind, I would think that they probably would not have the whole sun sickness makes Hanson crazy. I think they would commit to a reason why he went crazy, either because he's a religious nut or because he's had too many black ops missions. Um, I don't think they would throw a bunch of different ways that someone could go crazy at us. I think they would commit to one. What about you guys? I think we'd have more explicit critique of the military. I think it would be a little more complicated, maybe more of a discussion of trauma and how it impacts soldiers and people in general. And yeah, it'd be a little bit messier of a storyline. I agree. I think that the fact that they didn't delve into his trauma and the real reasons behind this, I think that that would have been more explored if this episode had been made today. I also think there may have been a little bit more investigation as to like into the relationship between Carter and him. Cause I mean, I, I kind of like it because it kind of le- gives us the opportunity to evaluate it. And I like that it doesn't, it's not like a oh, Carter was a victim and let's make her all victimy. We kind of are left to figure that part out. And she, and like, she gets to be both a victim in some ways and also the person we know her to be in other ways, who's very much in charge and confident. So I, you know, so I, I kind of, I'm glad they didn't make that more explicit, but I think part of, part of me thinks they didn't because I don't really think they understood like how domestic violence works. You know, like there, there seems like this was very much like a men writing about this like bad ex-boyfriend. You know, like, I think they thought of it as like, oh, just kind of like an asshole ex- ex-fiance, not an actually an abusive ex-fiance. That would probably be different now. And I think it would be different because I don't think you'd get a writer's room that's all men, which this mostly was. You'd have more of a woman's perspective in that kind of relationship. Do you think uh, if this happened in real life that Carter would have gone on the mission? I mean, I, I think they would have pulled her back because she had that relationship with Hanson. Yeah, I mean, they clearly, O'Neill knew about her history, like, because he's like, you know, kind of trying to keep her back. Um, or trying to tell her to go back and all that. And so it seems like it was his call, but obviously he he knew about it. So Hammond must have known about it. And I agree that I think it they would have probably decided that it wasn't appropriate. Like she was too close to the situation and also unfair to her to put her in that position of like having to kill somebody she was engaged to. All right. Well, next time we have episode six of season one called Cold Lazarus, a bit of an odd one. Yeah, it's definitely an O'Neill character study. <laughs> All right. See you next week. Bye. Bye. He's more of a lover rather than a fighter. Basically, he was a geek, sir. Like and subscribe on your favorite podcasting platform. If you don't like us, still like and subscribe. Follow us on Instagram at Probing the Wormhole, on Twitter at Probing Wormhole, Facebook at Probing the Wormhole. You can also contact us on our website at probingthewormhole.com. Thank you.